Welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. We are your hosts, Tom and Mike Greeley of Newmark, and we appreciate you tuning in as always. It's been a noteworthy few weeks locally and nationally for the Newmark platform, highlighted by the recruitment of some dominant capital markets teams across the country, and also our firm's engagement on a much-discussed loan portfolio of quite significant size. In New York, the addition of Doug Harmon and Adam Spees and their incredible investment sales team, in addition to the continuation of a trend in Dallas, with the addition of some market-leading industrial capital markets experts, it's all great news and builds on the indisputable momentum that we've felt in Newmark in recent years. Speaking of industrial real estate, we're excited to bring you this week's interview with Ben Butcher, executive chairman of Stag Industrial. Stag is a publicly traded REIT on the New York Stock Exchange since its IPO in 2011 and specializing in the acquisition and operation of industrial properties throughout the U.S. As of 12-31-22, Stag had an enterprise value of $8.4 billion with 112 million square feet across 562 buildings in 41 states. Pretty impressive. Since its inception, Stag Industrial has been synonymous with its founder and longtime CEO, president, and chairman, Ben Butcher. While Ben has recently stepped back into an executive chairman role, a succession process which he discusses in this talk, the company and its private predecessor entities, known as Stag Capital Partners, have been the focus of his life and career since he jumped fully into the industrial sector in 2003. We enjoyed this unfiltered and unscripted conversation with Ben, and we appreciate his candor in sharing both his personal story from his days at Bowdoin and B-School at Tuck, the go-go days of real estate lending at Nomura and Credit Suisse, and the origins and tremendous growth of Stag Industrial. While Stag's focus on industrial was undeniably ahead of the intense focus on the sector by the broader capital markets, it was not always smooth sailing, and we hear all about these challenges in our talk with Ben. This was a high-voltage discussion, I'd say. Ben was a great combination of high energy and high intellect, and he really doesn't hold much back, so we think you're going to like it. What struck me, though, was after seven of these discussions with seven different folks, we've heard our seventh unique pathway into the real estate business. We've heard people as hopefully you've listened in, have entered via construction, via finance, even television in one case. But Ben is the first to have started in a paper company. So he's basically working at Dunder Mifflin for a few years before starting the real estate journey. Super interesting and overall a great conversation. We hope everyone enjoyed a nice weekend with their families. We had a great time with the family celebrating Easter and watching the Masters. Good friend of the podcast, John Rahm emerged victorious yesterday. So we are very excited for our friend John and wish him the best this year. <laughs> Great uh, friend of the pod. <laughs> wrapping up. Thank you to all our listeners for subscribing and sharing these episodes with colleagues and friends in the business. We continue to be blown away by the traction of these interviews in the market and is clear this content is filling a void. What else we got? Jack Greeley, one of our older brothers, just turned 40. Big round number. Happy birthday to Jacko. I don't know if that's a welcomed salutation or putting him on blast, but we're excited for Jack. 40 is a big one, and we'll find a way to celebrate soon. All right. Enjoy the episode. Good dirt, baby. Thank you. We're excited to be here today with Ben Butcher, Executive Chairman of Stag Industrial. Ben, thank you very much for coming in. Great to be here. So, Ben, before we start and jump into this, I think it'd be helpful for our audience if they could just get a quick snapshot from you of Stag Industrial and your perspective today as executive chairman. So, Stag Industrial is a entity focused on the acquisition and operation of industrial assets in the U.S., primarily in the lower 48, primarily in smaller primary markets and larger secondary markets. 
We are currently about 550 assets, about 120 million square feet, and really focused on finding places where we can take advantage of good relative returns compared to the rest of the market. So we've grown from, at the IPO, circa 90 assets, 120 assets, I forget exactly the number, and about a $200 million market cap to, at the end of 2021, we were $8 billion market cap. So grown a lot, 20 people to 100 people. But anyway, we've been, been a very successful run, very fortunate to be involved in the industrial sector, which is that and data centers and perhaps multifamily look about the more bulletproof sectors to be involved in. So happy to be there. Absolutely. Selfishly, I'm going to add medical office to that list <laughs> for all our listeners who are allocating capital. Ben, this is a great real estate story. So we're going to now step back and go to the beginning. You went to Bowdoin College. We would love to hear about sort of your college experience, starting your career, getting out of school and what the world was like and what your plans were at that point in your life. So I had a great time at a, at a great college, Bowdoin. Played a little lacrosse, a little soccer there. Probably didn't study as much as I should have. Quick story, the development or the career counseling guy said, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, well, I'm going to go to Harvard Business School. And he said, huh, it's interesting. You were dean's list your first semester here. You kind of have drifted down from there. I don't think you're going to get into Harvard Business School. Time goes on. I take my GMATs. I send my scores to my parents' house. The scores also get sent to this development officer. And at eight o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning, pounding on my door, you, if I may use the word fucking asshole, you're going to Harvard Business School. I love it. <laughs> because he said, you've gotten like 50 or 60 points higher than anyone has ever gotten at Bowdoin before on the GMATs. There's no way you won't get in. They ended up giving me a deferred acceptance because they also looked at my grades and figured I might not be the most attentive of students. I ended up looking to wait the two years to go to Harvard Business School, ended up playing soccer for the Harvard Business School team during that first year. And at the end of the first year, I went back and said, look, I don't feel like waiting anymore. You either take me now or I'm going to go someplace else. I had applied to and went to talk instead of Harvard because they said, no, we're they actually said, we expected you to be in a bank training program and doing all the sort of things to prepare. And I actually had gone to Europe, driven across the country worked in a warehouse, did a bunch of different things that I felt like, you know, felt like doing rather than what they wanted me to do. I love it. You probably look back and there's probably zero regret about that year of having fun. No. So I said, I'm just going to fool around, entertain myself for a year, and then I'm going to go to business school. So I ended up going to talk. One of my friends said I got into talk because he wanted me there to play intramural soccer. And he <laughs> intervened in the admissions process to make sure I got in. And actually, it was the first year that Tuck had ever taken GMATs as a determinant of who they admitted. And my floor at Tuck was a bunch of basically college athletes who were really good at taking tests. And we ended up, we played hall hockey, had beer parties, et cetera. And they call us the cesspool because we're on the bottom floor of this one building. And then at the end of the first semester, I think there were 11 people on the floor and we had nine of the top grade point averages, nine of the top 10 grade point averages out of that 11. But we also won, I believe, the college championship in soccer, football, second hockey, basketball and softball. And they outlawed the Tuck students from playing in the fraternity leagues after that. <laughs> yeah, we, we have a lot of friends who have gone through Tuck and Dartmouth also, yeah. but they take their intramural and club sports very seriously up there. So we had like my best friend up there, a guy named Billy Dorn, had been three-year captain at Holy Cross in basketball, last cut by the Knicks before he came to Tuck. So he was either going to be on the Knicks or he was going to come to Tuck. 
they had regularly inter-Greek meetings, whatever. He shouldn't be allowed to play as a professional. No, he's a Tuck student. And then I was scoring a couple of goals a game in soccer. They said, he shouldn't be allowed to play. And there was another guy in softball who played minor league baseball. He shouldn't be allowed. And we're playing against, obviously, in intramurals. We're not playing against the guys who can make varsity teams. We're yeah. playing against guys who can't make varsity teams. So it wasn't quite fair. But I forgot, we also won near two water polo. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, we had a lot of fun to talk, but it was a great educational experience as you, the nature of school is you go from high school to college to graduate school. Each one is a filter and you end up with successively more, either better students or smarter people or or more whatever people. So the tech experience was really good from a challenge and educational perspective. Like college, my grades went from really good to okay by the time I graduated because I I worked very hard at the things that I was interested in, didn't work as hard at the things I wasn't that interested in. And so I got out of Tuck and said, since I had never really gotten any real business experience, I said, I probably should go ahead and take a MBA type job. So I took a job with Champion International, big forest products company since has been bought by International Paper. And they determined that I was a high potential executive recruiter ever. And they said, we're going to move you around a lot. So I was there with them for two years. I was in Ohio as a what was I doing in Ohio? I guess I was a capital analyst, so planning the capital projects in mills in Connecticut very briefly as a assistant product manager on uncoated paper. I spent two months in Alabama helping break a strike. So they took all the salaried employees under the age of 35 down there, and we ran this mill during a strike. I got all kinds of stories in that which we will not go into. I bet breaking a strike in Alabama at a paper mill is pretty interesting. Seven days a week, 12 hours a day seven at night to seven in the morning. I was actually interesting. So I recently minted MBA. They took our, because National Labor Relations Board was watching what we were doing because of the strike. They took our salary down to an hourly, paid us time and a half for 40 to 80 hours. And since we were working 84 hours, we got double time for the last four hours. But if the job skill you were doing was paid higher than your MBA salary, they give you the higher salary. And I actually had worked a year off before college, I'd worked as an auto mechanic, so I had some mechanical skills. So they made me a mechanic in the mill. I had a little three-wheel cushion I drove around and fixed things. And that salary was, I think, $18 an hour, and my MBA was $14 an say, hour. The, so. the only <laughs> Ivy League MBA with a mechanic job. I love that. It's great to hear. So you get out of Tuck, take this job yeah. with Champion International, takes you all over the country doing interesting things. And we know you made a couple more stops before you got to the stag part of your career. But at this point, was real estate in the back of your head at all? So maternal grandfather was a architect developer in Cambridge. If you know where the Sheraton Commander is, the four apartment buildings across the street from that are still in the family. They were built between 1917 and 1921 by my grandfather, and we still own them. So the last job that I had with Champion International was running production in an envelope plant in Santa Fe Springs, California. They said to me, your next job, and again, these six-month iterative processes in developing me to be a good executive in the paper company, was to go out in sales, to sell envelopes. And I looked around and I said, I was listening to our salesmen, the guys who were selling envelopes out of that plant. And they said, every day they were talking about their friends who worked at CB. Caldwell Banker, these guys make a lot of money. They have a lot of fun. We work harder, don't make as much money. So I said, I really, my career is not gonna be in paper or in envelopes. And so if I'm gonna go someplace, I had a good friend from Bowdoin who worked at CB. And I said, I'm gonna go to CB. And the manager of the plant goes, you're leaving? Are you going to another envelope company? <laughs> I said, no, 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 I'm not going to. And the president of the paper division called me up and goes, 
Ben, I can tell you, we really, really like you as an executive. I think that in 20 years, you could run the paper division. And my response was, if you told me I could run the paper division tomorrow, I'm still leaving. Yeah. So anyway, I went to CBA. I had an interview with a number two guy whose name escapes me today out in LA. And he said, Ben, the one thing you want to do, real estate, although is not as much of a local business as it used to be, it's still a local business. Figure out where you want to live, go there. And I said, okay, I want to live in Boston. And I immediately went to Washington, D.C. to work for CB. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was a good opportunity. And that's where my friend from Bowdoin was working. And I ended up being with CB for five years in D.C., doing office leasing and investment sales. Left there and then with a short stop in Colorado along the way, ended up back in Boston with CB, first in, in Boston and then in Wellesley. And then I determined that it, I really didn't want to be a broker. I wanted to be a principal. And there was an opportunity with an acquaintance who had been a stop and shop uh, site location guy to go out and identify potential shopping center sites with anchor interest. And so we went out and identified, I think our, we worked for a long time on a project in Hudson, which we ended up not, it was a wetland and my friend wouldn't listen that it was a wetland. We ended up not pursuing, we ended up building, I think four or five deals where we would identify an anchor and a site and then joint venture with either, or initially Bill Finard and then later Howard Grossman. And that carried us through. Were you doing a little bit of everything for that group? You know, I was it was a small outfit, right? I was so, doing everything Yeah, because my partner was useless. <laughs> so, so trial by fire, site selection, finding development sites yeah. for grocery anchored shopping centers. Yeah. You'd been in office leasing and, and investment sales before. So it was, it was a new skill set, but. Yeah, but it, I mean. A lot of real estate is blocking and tackling. So if you see the problem in front of you, it's not a really a moving target, you know, and this, at least this wasn't a moving target because there wasn't like 16 people looking at the site, trying to figure out what to do. We knew, for instance, Stop and Shop wanted a deal in Hudson, that first deal I mentioned, and no one had been able to solve it. So we went out and identified the likely site. Unfortunately, we sent a wetland out there and the expert out there, and he came back and said, Tussage something is, but it means it's definitely a wetland and there's little clumps of grass, which are called tussaged oh, something. But anyway. Anyt anytime you see tussage or reeds of any, yeah, any type, there's usually turtles there, spotted turtles, and then you, you run into all sorts of issues. We built the shopping center down in Killingly, Connecticut. And I'm on the way to the final meeting with the planning department and I drive by the site and there's two ducks in a little depression on the site. I drove, the, drove my Bronco across and chased them away. <laughs> Good move. Well, and Finard and Grossman, two good partners there, though. Yeah. So good crash course in the real estate development yeah. industry, for sure. So I'm with CB during the early 80s, mid 80s. I go out on my, essentially on my own, probably just before the tax law change in 86, and do three or four years of this development activity going into 89. And in 89, the savings loan crisis, it wasn't a global financial crisis, but in terms of New England, it was every bit as bad. 89, 90 was every bit as bad as 2008, 2009. The leading light in real estate at that time, Bill McCall said, it's over about the Boston real estate market. It's over and it's never coming back. It's just done. And so as we head into 89 and 90, I'm looking at the world and going, I probably shouldn't do any more projects. Unfortunately, Howard did one more project that cost him very dearly, personally, financially, because of a personal guarantee. But I said, yeah, that doesn't make sense to do. So what should I do? I know I'll go to Asia. So I went to Asia for four months by myself, just travel around, ended up hooking up with a semi-pro soccer team out of Bangkok and playing in tournaments every weekend. <laughs> you can make this up. I mean, all, all of our research, we do pretty good research. <laughs> we, we missed this whole part of your Connell life. Chamberlain so missed the stuff. Bangkok era. Jeez. <laughs> 
it was a great experience. But that was a, it's interesting because if I look back at my career, you could argue that I was on a track to be a Boston real estate guy up until 89, 90, I was on a track. I was thinking about it today. I would have ended up probably somewhere between John Madison. You guys know John? Between John Madison and John Davis. So big organized company or fly by night doing deals, whatever. Sorry, John. <laughs> we uh, love John Madison. With so a lot of success great. on he both sides. Tremendous yeah. success. So I would have ended up somewhere, probably at least halfway in between, because I'm probably a little more organized than John, and I can appeal to institutional capital pretty well. John can too. I shouldn't demean and Madison's John. golf game is very strong too. He so a very he's a tough guy to golf game. We played together in a member member at Old Sandwich every year. Uh, he's the best. One year, we had a six-shot lead after the first round. It's metal play. I celebrated hard, suggested we should move from the net to the gross flight. Eh, yeah, so fa- maybe fa- over-celebrated. Well, we John, I will ask him about that. <laughs> yeah, Madison will definitely be on. Yeah. So when I came back from Asia, that was a demarcation. I had left sort of the Boston real estate. And I came back and said, it's now middle of 1990 and is... Is the Boston real estate market really in a condition where I want to sort of throw myself back into it? And I forget exactly, was it because Massachusetts voted from a governor? I forget what the real reason was, but the financial crisis of 89-90 hit New England much harder than anywhere else because the regulators, whatever, focused on New England. And so New England was having a much harder time coming out of the crisis than other places. And I, I had some friends from CB in Washington who were also real estate developers. We formed a company called Greencastle Development and went to build shopping centers in Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. And we had a great relationship with the site selector for Food Lion. At the time, Food Lion was growing very rapidly, had a great reputation. About two years into this process, ABC News and the United Food and Commercial Workers did an expose on Food Lion claiming they picked up fish off the floor. You know, they did all this stuff. It was later proved that the whole thing was made up. Food Lion was the only big non-union grocer in the country at the time. And it was a hit piece, completely fabricated, but it killed Food Lion for a year. And they used to be complete handshake people. We're going to build a shopping center here with you. You tell us what you need in rent to make it work and we'll build very small centers, you sort of made it up in volume. You have to do a lot of them to make money. And they went, again, from being a handshake company to not trusting anybody. And so Greencastle Development, which was the name of the city where their distribution center was in Pennsylvania, ended up being basically tied to a dead horse. So I'm about six months into the process of trying to figure out what to do with this company whose prospects have been severely diminished by this issue with Food Lion. A friend of mine from business school calls me up who's working at Namora. He's been calling me for like a year saying, you need to come here. You need to come here. We have a great opportunity here. And he calls me up and he said a phrase that finally got me. It's playtime without adult supervision. (laughs) And so my boss at Namora, Ethan Penner, had made a deal with the Japanese. Ethan, visionary guy, had seen that CMBS was an opportunity to basically intermediate between institutional capital and commercial real estate. And so he was able, largely because of capital requirements, et cetera, but he was able to get the Japanese to give him a deal to allocate a large amount of money to him to do CMBS, to warehouse CMBS loans, and then sell them into the public as bonds in the public market. But the key thing that from Ethan's perspective was the deal he made with the Japanese was on, his pay was based on gross revenue, not on net. And so he didn't give a shit about how much it costs to do anything. So my first interview up there, I spent the morning talking to 
the senior executives, et cetera. And then I was going to go out to lunch with Ethan. We went to 21 for lunch, had cheeseburgers and a $2,500 bottle of wine. That was typical. So during my time at Nomura, we were a, the largest lender in the United States, four years in a row, largest commercial real estate lender in the United States, four years in a row. But we also had a party once a year for our borrowers and for bond buyers called the showcase. We would spend three to $5 million over two and a half, three days entertaining. We had Elton John introduce the Lion King songs one year. We had the Eagles break their hell freezes over tour to play on a Saturday night. It was at an airport that had a blimp hanger. So they flew in. This is in Palm Springs. Nobody knew they were there. They flew in completely incommunicado, set up. We had a dinner in one half of the blimp hanger. Before dessert served, the curtain comes down, lights come up, and there they are. The five Elvises on stage. And this is old school. Yeah, this so is awesome. Glenn Fry looks at us and goes, I don't know who you people are, but you must have had a pretty good year. <laughs> and then uh, Henley goes, last time I played for a crowd this small, I was in junior high school. That's like maybe 500 people total. We had Stevie Wonder for 300 people. Another time we had a rodeo with Bruce Hornsby, Stevie Nicks, Timothy Schmidt, and one other plane. It was just, we had another time we had the, when Phoenix emptied out a wave pool at a water park, had Sting do an all police show in the bottom of the wave pool. And my, my best friend at Namora and I sat in the back and because we're paid on net, not gross. We were figuring out what it costs us to have this concert go <laughs> yeah. on. It doesn't cost Ethan anything. It was costing us something like $30,000 each to have, we think, oh, to have this show. <laughs> but was it worth it? Sounds like it, it might was have been worth it. It was a great event. Yeah, we, we got to the, so one of our final questions in these discussions oftentimes is, tell us about your most memorable live music experiences. I think I think we might yeah, have well, a full Well, that's not it. Then I'm excited to hear the winner. I'm excited to hear the winner. Two better than that. All right, we'll hold them because we're going to so that was the no adult supervision phase. Yeah, so, so the more after four years, I was getting tired of the, it was Ethan and his top two guys were sort of, they were difficult to work with. They tried to take the company private as Capital America. I said, come on, guys, Capital America sounds like Captain America. You can have like a little cartoon. And they said, no, we're worth billions of dollars. And the number two guy, one of the number two, the co-number two guys, they moved to California. They took the top floor to 100 California. And... You come in, the reception was in front of you. To the left was everybody else. And to the right was the executive wing, which is where these three guys would hang out. And they they wanted an unobstructed view of both bridges. So they wanted to be able to see the Golden Gate and the, what's the other bridge called? The, the Bay, Bay Bridge. Bay Bridge. They want to be able to see both of them. And so one of the code number twos comes in while the build-out's going on and says, there's a column there in the middle there. I can see both, but it's not unobstructed. There's a column there. And the guy who's torn, the building guy who's torn him goes, yeah, it's a structural column. And he goes, that's not the deal. We want to have an unobstructed view. And the guy goes, well, well, you can have an unobstructed view. It's going to be very, very, very expensive. I don't care. I think it was a million bucks to build around that column. But luckily, it was up near the top of the building, but they still... They had to spend, and they were out of business like two months later. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bygone era, though, hearing some so of anyway, those stories. I, I left there for a variety. I was supposed to go to open a Dallas office, and I got in a fight with Ethan and said, fuck you, I'm leaving. My best friend had, prior to that, moved to Credit Suisse, and I had moved. So I went over to originate loans. I ran business development, basically. I was the quote-unquote real estate guy and the more Everybody else was finance. So Ethan used to say that your real estate gets in the way of you understanding how these deals work. I said, well, if you want them to work, I will say when I was at Namora, one of the last deals I worked on with John Fowler was Providence Place Mall. And Providence Place Mall only got built 
because I convinced my boss to guarantee the construction loan. It would not have gotten billed except for that. Who was the borrower there? Who uh, developed Providence Place? Uh, what is the guy? It was an ex-pyramid guy's name is, escapes me right got now, it, but an ex-pyramid guy. Yeah. Well, iconic, being, iconic project. But after it was built, it was underwater, underwater, underwater. And then over a six-month period, this guy whose name escapes me right now went from being having no value to like $120 million. It was an amazing turnaround in value. That stretch when you're at Nomura and then moving to CS, was it a different role? Was it a different type of platform at the time? I would characterize the Nomura platform as reasonable underwriting, very, very creative in terms of bond structures, et cetera, and crazy with regard to spending money on parties. Credit Suisse was reasonably tame in terms of parties, but aggressive beyond belief in deal structure. So also, his deal wasn't on gross, it was on net, but Andy Stone, who ran the principal transactions group at Credit Suisse, was being paid on current income. And so the fees associated with a transaction could either be capitalized or recognized immediately. And I probably think Andy didn't think it was going to last forever, so it was very important that they be recognized immediately. I think at one point we had three attorneys doing nothing but working on having fees not be capitalized. There was a transaction that came in once to buy, I think it was like 10 golf courses in the greater Dallas, Fort Worth area to be converted to residential. It came in as I believe a $42 million loan request for 90% financing and we got a piece of the upside for that. It went out as a, I believe a $51 million loan with fees and loan reserves and everything else built on top, way more than it was worth, but non-capitalized fees, which was at the end of the day was the most important thing. The last deal I worked on there was a 90% loan on a 10,000 acre farm in California. So the underwriting had gone through it. it. The key was the borrower's best friend was the head of risk oversight for our group by the Swiss. And so it was highly important that we get this loan done because this guy would be happy and his friend, et cetera. And so they said, Ben, underwrite this, but make sure we do it. So I went through the underwriting and it was clear that they were going to make $10 million and that's supporting a $90 million loan. And we were going to get half the upside over a $90 million loan. So at the investment committee meeting about it, Andy asked me, so you're pretty confident of the $10 million income this year? I said, yeah, that looks to be pretty locked in. How about next year? I said, it'll probably be 10 million again, but I can't tell you whether it'll be plus or minus. <laughs> yeah. And he said, okay, don't put that in the record. We're going to make the loan. So this is late 90s. This is, this is happening? This is 98. Yeah. Early 98. Well, you, you have a real estate mind. We love when we have guests and they remember loan amounts and figures from deals they looked at and worked on in the 90s. Here we are, you know, 25 years later. And so I was watching what was going on within the principal transactions group and realized that there was a brick wall in front of us. We're running with even without recognizing what was going on in 98 with regard to the debt crises, et cetera. I realized this group was going to run into a brick wall. They were just doing deals that didn't make sense. And so there was a time when one of the Swiss board members came in to see, hey, We've given you guys a lot of money. Very brief aside, Credit Suisse hired McKinsey to tell them how to make money. They said, the German banks make all this money, big return on equity. We only make like a 1% return on equity. They make five or six. Why? McKinsey came back and said, because you don't take any risks. You're Swiss. You don't know how to take risks. But we have good news for you. You own First Boston, and First Boston are Americans, and they know how to take risks. So you should give them a bunch of money. So they gave their emerging markets and Andy's group principal transactions 
billions of dollars each to go out. And both groups ended up losing billions. But so one of the board members from Credit Suisse comes in and he says, I want to meet Andy Stone because I, I know you guys are making a lot of money for us and you're doing all the wonderful things McKinsey said we should do. Andy wasn't there. I said, okay, can I talk to Larry? Larry was the number two guy. Eh, Larry's not here either. Okay, who is here? Well, one of the two co-number threes is here, Karen, who is Stuart and Karen, always known as Starin. So he goes in and says, so Karen, I want to congratulate you on your success. Very exciting. Can you tell me what the outstanding commitments are for the principal transaction group? She goes, I believe it's about 13 billion. I know we have a $12.5 billion cap. We're a little over, but don't worry, we're going to sell down. We'll get under the cap. He goes, that's great. Good to hear. He leaves there. We're on the fourth floor. He goes to the fifth floor with the treasury department. He says, run me the outstandings on the principal transactions group, 29 billion. And what he discovered was it wasn't that Karen was lying. She didn't know. And so two different audits come in. It turns out the number's actually higher. And there was some sham repo agreements in there. So the, the whole bunch of things. So they sh shut the group down. I told Andy, actually, even before that happens, that I'm done. He says, can you finish this farm deal? I need you to get this, shepherd this through. So I said, I'll hang around. So I came in in khakis and a golf shirt for like three months. And this is back in the day when it was suits and ties People every day. People wearing suits and ties. I, mean, I can remember being in an elevator with a couple of you know young masters of the universe. And they were looking at me going, what are you doing on our elevator? And I was tempted. I wish I had, but I was going to say, hey, you guys, I'm thinking about a really important deal. And your being here is kind of bothering me. So could you get off the elevator, please? <laughs> I love I'm, you. I'm, a like, I'm a managing director and you're not. It's a real life <laughs> office space coming in in shorts and a t-shirt. So can we fast forward to Sorry, Stag? Sorry, I'm taking up too no, much No, no, this is awesome. This is what we hope for. But let's get to Stag a little bit. We'd love to hear about the formation of Stag, when that occurred, what the thought process was and what the early days looked like. So when I was at Nomura, again, I, I mentioned that I ran business development. We were, again, the largest lender in the country for four years in a row, but we wanted to be bigger. And one of the areas that we were not active in was CTL, credit tenant lease business, which was a reasonably big subsegment of the mortgage business. So we went out and looked at it and the standard CTL loan business was in a hyper-efficient market. We were making loans, regular commercial mortgage loans and making, making a $10 million loan and selling it for $11 million. So a 10% return like a month later. Easy, no risk business. The CTL market was more like a 1% business, $10 million loan for itself for 10.1 million. So not interested. While we're there, we said, well, maybe we should get in on the equity side. And so we looked at some of the people who are buying wholesale and selling retail into the 1031 market. We kind of fooled around with that for a little bit and said, no, that's probably not anything we want to do. So I took the initiative to go and look, what happens if we uncheck boxes? So instead of being a credit tenant, triple B or minus or greater, how about if it's a double B? 200 basis points of extra return for double B plus versus a triple B minus. Makes no sense. How about if it's a nine-year lease rather than a 12-year lease? Again, a couple hundred basis points, different return. Given the high retention probabilities, et cetera, it said absolutely no sense whatsoever. Location, the same kind of thing. So we went, it was clear that there was a market inefficiency here. And it was also clear that it looked like it was a persisting market inefficiency because institutional capital wouldn't cross that border into the non-CTL, whatever the reason was. And so we went out and put together a portfolio of 10 deals that we knew were in the market. We priced them at what we thought we could get a mortgage on them. We can underwrite a mortgage for. And then we showed it to rating agencies, but we, we spiffed up the returns, et cetera, the income to make it look like it was a more normal loan amount. And the... Radiance just came back and said, this produces all investment grade bonds. So we figured we could originate these, 
sell 100% loans on them, and my boss would end up keeping the tail. I was hoping I'd keep the tail, but his, his view of the world was he'd keep the tail. Unfortunately, at that time, the Japanese had said, we're not giving you any additional capital to pursue new initiatives. So that's probably 1995, 1996. Promptly in 2003, I said, you know, there's a pretty good idea there. I'm going to go back and look at it. When I came back from New York in 1998, I pursued, went back to private real estate, looking at doing deals. Mostly at that point, I was doing stuff with Steve Goodman, a whole nother story. And we did a couple of brewery to warehouse conversions and did a couple of sort of stag-like deals prior to the founding of stag. A couple of those were with Peter Marigan and Taurus, did a couple of deals with them as well. But I thought this was an idea that deserved more than sort of an ad hoc, we'll do a deal here, a deal there, for it really to make sense. Not only was it important to identify these assets that were mispriced, but also to be do it in volume to get the diversification benefits. Very low correlation across these assets. So if you could do 10, 20 assets, you have a very different return profile than if you do one or two. So I figured I needed more capital than I had. I went to Steve Carp and Steve Fishman, who I knew from my retail development days. Obviously, they're in a stratosphere, whereas I was down poking around on the ground. And I told them what I wanted to do. And they said, this sounds like a great idea. We'll give you the startup money. We'll give you co-investment dollars. We'll give you turn on the light dollars. I took that money and made a deal with a company called Greenfield out of Connecticut, yeah. Gene Gorab, and did our first fund with Gene. He gave us 50 million and I think Carpet all put in 10 or something like that. And we went out, invested in 23 properties, sold it for two years later for a 63 net IRR. That return allows us to do our second fund with two institutions, so DuPont and North Carolina. That was a $400 million fund. And I think that's amazing because that's a story that people probably don't know is that Steve Carp and Steve Fishman were involved in the early days of STAG. But you're doing these deals. And to this point, and we've heard your story, you're not necessarily a bricks and mortar guy, right? You've developed some shopping centers, but from an industrial real estate standpoint, you're a finance guy. How did you convince people like Steve and and Steve, who are such bricks and mortar guys, that, hey, I, I can figure this out. Well, first of all, industrial real estate is not that complicated. <laughs> I had bought one industrial building back in the 80s, a leveraged buyout on a deal up in Woburn. We were able to buy the company basically for the mortgage on the real estate. That deal didn't do well because my partners decided to not reinsure their product liability and at the same time change the formula on their lead product to something that caused product liability. But that's fine. It was a minor investment. Carbon Fishman never questioned my real estate knowledge, maybe incorrectly. But I had, you know, I had been financed, but I had been, you know, enough development experience, et cetera. And again, I don't think it's that complicated. And we try to tell Tony Cosker and Brian Pinch, it's not that complicated all the time. <laughs> 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 This initial tranche of properties with the capital from Greenfield and from Carp and Fishman, were those industrial deals or were those just single tenant? They're all single tenant. There were a couple office deals. Okay. So the original theory was you can apply this inefficiency likely occurs. And and the inefficiency is single tenant deal. You're either getting paid rent or you're paying the cost of carrying the building. People are going to apply bigger risk premiums to that because of the the worry that they're going to end up with a vacant building. You buy a bunch of them. You can diversify the risk. Not a way, but you, you mitigate the risk. You go from boundaries like here to boundaries like here. Those who can't see my hands are missing out on a whole lot here. And so that was the theory, and, and it certainly worked. Now, the assets that we bought in Fund 1 look very different than the assets we're buying today. They were a lot more hair on them. But they're also 9 to 11% cap rates. And but what happened was during the investing our second fund with Anglo-Irish as a lender, Anglo-Irish, and we talked about what we were originating, and they said, 
don't you want more money? And they said, we think we can finance you 90%. And so we embarked on SAG 3 with 90% leverage and high net worth money, basically CARP and friends, a lot of big private equity guys in it, et cetera. Stag four, Anglo Iris said, you know what? 90% is, we can underwrite 100%. And so Stag four was going to be an infinite return vehicle. We raised like $25 million, but that was just to cycle through. We'd, we'd originate pool finance, originate pool finance. Unfortunately, we did that in late 2007. We initiated that in late 2007. And the only thing that I would say in retrospect that we did wrong was always trying to avoid correlated risk within our portfolios. The one thing that we missed in correlated risk, and we did actually address it, we just addressed it too late, was the fact that all lower credits were going to get hurt by a credit crisis. Even if they weren't related to each other, the tide was going to come in or go out or whatever. It was going to hurt our lower rated credits, their ability to finance things, et cetera. And so we had too many lower rated credits in stack three and stack four. And so in 2000. Nine, we're looking to raise more money. Not a very fertile environment for raising money. We have operating issues within that. We are operating as a fee-based operating company, what I like to call the small hose, which is a little bit of tiny and a bit of NOI can be used to pay for the business. And frankly, in 2009, we had to do a reduction of force and we were struggling for how we we're going to finance the company going forward. And we ended up in 2009 having a meeting with UBS and UBS said, well, you have X number of assets. If you roll all your assets up, you could easily go public and you can go public in a nine cap. And a nine cap worked for us all day. It provided liquidity to all our tranches, et cetera. We started the process of the IPO. It took 19 months because we had to change from tax basis to gap. Our institutional investors in fund two started off by, we'll contribute the assets, then we'll, after about six months ago, yeah, there, and we'll get into this later about being a public company. Now our advisors tell us we should sell the assets into the IPO. And then six months after that go, we're not going to participate at all. We want fund two to stay out of the IPO. And fund two staying out of the IPO necessitated bulking up. We didn't, we then didn't have enough assets. Our fifth fund was a partnership with GI Partners, Rick Magnuson et al. And that was 160 million, I think. And we went out and bought enough assets to bulk up for the IPO over about a nine month period. So between the fund two investors and in, out, whatever, and the need to bulk up additionally, it took about 19 months. My CFO at the time, who will remain nameless, probably every week ago, we're never gonna make it, sky's falling, it's over, stop trying. Because the process fatigue, I'm sure it was torturous. Yeah. One of the best compliments I ever received was our lead outside, outside counsel, John Sullivan, a little emotional about that, said it's the greatest example of leadership I've ever seen. That's awesome. You should be proud. That's awesome. It just going through an IPO process, that's a 19 month long process and having to get over those hurdles, you hadn't been in the public markets before. So, so you're learning as you go. And yeah. of course there's advisors and there's consultants and experts, but you're taking what was sort of your shop and trying to turn this into a public vehicle, which just the hurdles and climbing that mountain in itself is huge. Never mind when the markets and the seed assets aren't cooperating. It wasn't a great IPO market at the time we did it. The last night of the road show, we're in San Francisco. Our last meeting ends up being our largest investor in the IPO. And our last partner prices slightly below the range. doesn't think they're getting enough. So they say, we're not contributing our assets. This is at 
probably 10 o'clock West Coast time, one o'clock in the morning. We're not contributing our assets unless we get the value we want. And the only way to do that was to take Stag 4 and take Stag 4 from a $25 million value down to about 4 or $5 million. And Stag 4 is a syndicate of high net worths eventually, right? Carp, Fishman, and Friends. So you're, and you're calling them and letting them know what's yeah. going on. Well, Carp and Fishman were on the phone and they, to their credit, they said, close it. We'll take the hit. It's the right thing to do. I think that they, you know, in the long run, they've done fine, but it was a big hit for them at the time. It was a com- completely unworn and it was against what we had agreed to in principle. The documents got written up in a way that allowed them to do this, but it was completely against what we talked about. It was always, you'll contribute the assets and you'll go pro rata with everybody else. But he had a way through the documents to hold it up and, and did. And this was a challenging time in the world. This is 2010 coming out of the GFC. Yeah. There was not a lot of liquidity out there, right? So yeah, it was not an easy IPO time. So we were able to get public and we came public at 13. We got down to 950, 958, I think was our low. We had over a 10% dividend yield at the time. Shame on me for not finding a way to buy a whole bunch of stock at the time. But it was a challenging time. But the reason to go public, there were basically three reasons to go public. One, access to capital. Clearly, you have all the ways you can access capital as a private company, also the public markets, both debt and equity. So clearly, access to capital was an important we're better counterparty. Instead of operating at 70, 80, 90% leverage, we're now operating at 35, 40% leverage. So much better counterparty. We're a triple B rated entity now. No one questions our credit, et cetera, et cetera. We borrow money on an unsecured basis. We can still borrow money on a 10-year basis, at unsecured at four and a half or three, something like that. And lastly, perhaps most importantly, I talked about the little hose before. As a public company, you get to use, if you want, your entire NOI, obviously the investors might not be happy about it, to hire and retain employees. And so when you're an episodic fund model living off fees, you have a bright young man or woman come in and you say to them, hey, I can't pay you market today, but I'm going to give you a piece of our next deal, which will probably be in a year when we do the fundraise. And about six years after that, you might do really well. It's not a compelling, and it's become less compelling for the decades that have come after. It's become less compelling. So building the organization that we built would not have been possible on the episodic fund model. And that was probably the most compelling reason to go public was it allowed us to get away from the scrimping that occurred, the reduction in force. that occurred. We let go some very good people in 2009. So that third reason is probably the most compelling reason. Yeah. And it's interesting. You watch some folks build the machine and say, hey, we're going to get this ready for the public markets through aggregation of whatever asset class it is. And those are people that generally ha- have this plan you know, to build a I platform that can become a I never, ever thought we were going to be a public company. I would never. And you know what? I would tell you personally, my personal net worth, which is, is fine the way it is, if we had stayed private somehow and just built portfolios and sold them to Blackstone, I know I'm saying I'd be as rich as the Blackstone guys, but I'd be a lot more, I'd have a lot more money than I have now. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting it's, to hear I'm, it. I'm happy that we built the organization. Well, and you should be proud and clearly personnel and your workforce was as important as anything to you. And, and that still resonates today. And I'm sure those people who are still around appreciate that. So it's a testament to you. So that, that's a tough macro environment, sort of a Shackleton-esque IPO process. Then the stock dips. So you're right away sort of psychologically, you're going through it, right? So you're, how are you walking into the office every day and staying positive and keeping the team sort of morale up at a time when there was a ton of uncertainty in the capital markets? Two phrases, good life and vault. 
So the, those were where I drink after work. That's awesome. <laughs> Good life involved. For those oh, folks who are listening from outside of Boston, two great watering holes that were regular stops for most of the downtown business community. <laughs> Good life involved. That's yeah, awesome. Memories. Yeah, yeah. You, got, you had a good Ty Costa, Packy Norton crew back in oh, that yeah. day. Yeah. Good yeah. Life was there for a long time. That was a yeah. great place. Yeah. So it was stressful. But, you know, the other thing that happened is, to our benefit, is the industrial real estate market, I would say, if I had to pick a year, I'd say 2012 was the year it changed. There had been not even real rents, nominal rents, or unchanged in greater Boston in industrial from sometime in the 60s till 2012. You know, the four or five dollar rental in Mansfield in 1960 was still a four or five dollar rental in Mansfield in 2011. And I'm going to pick 2012. It may have been 11 or 13. The tenants realized that the industrial real estate wasn't that big a component of their overall cost structure and logistics, and they could afford to pay more. And starting again, whatever year you want to pick, rental growth, which had been one to two percent forever, took off and it's, it hasn't stopped. Walt Rakovich, who ran Prologis, ambient way ran Prologis, before he retired, was on his retirement tour. And he and I spent some time together. And I said, Walt, tell me your best rental market in the world. What's your expectation? He goes, Tokyo. I said, what's the rental growth you expect over time? Almost 2%. And I said, okay, what's your worst market? He goes, well, we don't have any bad markets. I said, okay, Walt, enough. He goes, okay, Columbus, because there's so much building there, it's probably 1%. So I, I said, confirming kind of what I thought. The worst to the best is 1% to 2% long-term rental growth. And so it was $4 for decades, it yeah. sounds like. Let's say this Mansfield example. It's in the 4 bucks a foot. Where is that today, just for the listener's context? Oh, you know, depending on a new building in Mansfield, it's probably 12, 13, 14, something like that. I remember the first time I saw double-digit industrial rent. I, come on. I said, what is that on an airport? You know? Yeah. Rents over near the airport now, I don't know what they are, $40, $30? Well, even yeah. in just the past oh, no, we, three, we four years, numbers, three, four years, what we've seen to the folks that aren't in the trenches working on industrial every day, every time we heard a new stat, it was sort of eye-opening. But this world was sort of, it was going in this direction. Obviously, we can get to COVID and how that accelerated you know, the interest in both the capital markets and from tenant demand standpoint. But at that point, the tide sort of coming into industrial, your thesis is being proven correct and that you had conviction in these assets and you were buying the right kind of deals in the right markets. At that point, you're scaling in a major way from yep. where you started when you went public. Growing 30, 40% a year. Wow. Yep. And you're, you're staffing up, somehow maintaining culture in the team. And you know, as, as any organization Honestly. grows, how did you sort of maintain that stag identity? Because you guys, you were in the trenches before. The men and women that work at stag in the early days, that was warfare. You got through it and then the market sort of come to you a little bit. I would love to say I never made any personal mistakes. And I think we've done a very good job with maintaining culture. And it's hiring people that you guys know, Rowan. It's hiring good people like Rowan, who Rowan is, is a perfect, I wouldn't say perfect employee, sorry, Rowan. But he is the perfect kind of person because he cares about the people, he cares about the company, and cares about doing a great job. But he has a great attitude about maintaining, making sure that, you know, he runs our internship program, making sure we're bringing the right people in. Our internship program, we started off like begging people from, you know, Bentley to apply. Now we're turning down hundreds of Ivy League applicants every year. Yeah. And for a Boston-based REIT where a lot of your assets are out of the market. Yeah. So in some ways, to someone that's in the business every day here, you may not run into stag. Rowan McFeely is a great example of someone who represents the Stag brand locally, kind of, I'd say, in the Acela Court, a very well-known person. 
has an enormous pride in the company and for good reason. I think he's reflective of a lot of folks on your team that have been there for a long time. Mike Chase is employee four or five. Obviously been with me since 2004. Another I think well-known local mm-hmm. local guys. So. Yeah, there's no doubt. Great ambassadors for the brand, and Mike and I, as a multifamily sales broker and a medical office sales broker, for us to know as much as we do about Stag <laughs> even before this conversation is proof of that. So it's really impressive. I had a question on just we talked about how rents have changed in the market, and again, we are not industrial folks, so this isn't something we spend our day to day in. But you can't help but reading about Amazon. They're the big gorilla, and I'm sure they're in your portfolio in some places. Are they unprecedented? Was there an Amazon in the 2000s and the 90s? Was that a, a new thing for the market? So from a retail perspective, there have been SS Kresge, Woolworth, there's been Sears, there's been retailers that are as dominant or more dominant than Amazon have been. Walmart is still bigger than Amazon, but they didn't do it during a online shopping period. Where So the impact on, from a retail perspective, there certainly have been dominant players like that before. And certainly Walmart was, from an industrial perspective, was very impactful, obviously, because they are basically a distribution company. But Amazon's impact because of online shopping is, and also their hyper growth, especially during COVID, you see different numbers depending on the market. They can be 40 or 50% or more of the leasing activity in a market during 2020, 2019 and 2020. So clearly unprecedented in that regard. But they're not the only animal out there. Everybody else targeted Costco, et cetera, trying to catch up. And so right now we are seeing non-Amazon demand continue to drive the market higher. I always would tell people that there's going to be, you know, tenants are going to get tired. You know, when the $12 rents were at 7 or $8, they're tenant fatigue. They're going to stop soon. It hasn't happened. Our underwriting has historically been probably a little conservative on rental growth. It's probably kept us from buying in some of the primary markets because we just... We couldn't underwrite 50% rental growth in the Inland Empire West, but it occurred. So we've been priced out of markets where we wouldn't underwrite that kind of growth. And tenants like that who have a presence in your portfolio, and it sounds like there are others who you have a concentration of nationally, you as the leader of this organization for as many years as you were, are you forming relationships on a corporate level with those tenants? Is that how you operate or is that something that- So we talked about a little bit before, one of the hallmarks of our portfolio is diversification. And so Amazon, although they are our largest tenant, is maybe a little over 3% of our ABR. And so it's not important enough to us, and we're probably not important enough to them. We've just recently brought on a new head of real estate operations, Steve Kimball, who used to be with Prologis, ran the Eastern Division for Prologis at one point. Some of our asset managers have relationships. Rob Hawkins, I think, has a good relationship with Amazon. But again, it's not a big enough part of our portfolio for, for me to be involved. One of the questions you ask, you know, is what do I do? A lot of people ask, what do I do? Especially inside the company. You know, probably since 2015 or so, I've been focused on maybe earlier than that, people and capital. So people say, well, you must spend all your time looking at assets. The last time I went and looked at one of our assets was our Hampstead, Maryland facility. And I went because we built the largest solar installation in the country on the rooftop of our Hampstead, Maryland building. Largest community solar project, largest array in the country. And I went down to see the array. The building's interesting. It's 1.1 million square feet. It's full of Marvel comics. So it's an, an interesting facility for that. But, you know, between the fact that industrial is fairly homogeneous, Google Earth, really good reports from our staff, I don't need to go see building. Now, my executive team goes and sees every building, but there's no reason for me to. I'm on the road a decent amount, and I run into a lot of stag folks at the airport, <laughs> no matter where I am. 
we talked very briefly there about COVID. planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah, exactly. You know, we can't talk about industrial and industrial REIT like Stag without talking a little bit about COVID and sort of the focus that that brought from a capital markets perspective on industrial. It was happening before that, but certainly accelerated the focus on reshoring and nearshoring trends, the last mile and just in case inventory trends. How did you look at that wave of interest? You already understood it ahead of the market, but then all of a sudden you have, it seems like every middle market operator in the country all of a sudden was buying and developing or chasing industrial deals. Well, the first thing I would say is last mile is the most overused and least appropriately used. True industrial estate requires access by 18 wheelers. You have to have efficient means of getting the product into those buildings. Last mile facilities have to be someplace where you can get an 18 wheeler to it, or it's just a transshipment point. So you'll have Amazon will bring a trailer in full of stuff and people may in bikes and drones or whatever may take stuff out of that trailer. But that trailer is still going out to something on the ring road, which is really from an industrial perspective is a last mile facility. UPS defines last mile facility as a 500,000 foot building on the ring road. It's not a 20,000 foot building in the center of the city. Those are more transshipment points where they come in and out. I actually thought for a while that along the uh, railroad right-of-ways, they would build pneumatic tubes to bring stuff in from the suburbs. That hasn't eventuated, but working with Carp and Fishman, you know, they own a lot of shopping centers and they were always asking me, does this make a good last mile facility, this circuit city? And, you know, and I said, can you get 18 wheelers there? Well, sort of. Yeah. Maybe one neighbors a day. might not love it. Yeah, but... the neighbors might not love it. That's the issue. And so for a while there, you were seeing every industrial portfolio that went on the market, last mile portfolio. And then they show you a map and the buildings would be like 40 miles outside of a city someplace. And so it's a very overused term. There has been and continues to be lots of focus on three to 500,000 foot buildings around on the ring roads around population centers. That has always been the case for industrial. There was five, seven years ago, a big push to, gee, we need million square footers two or three in the country, and we'll, that'll be the basis of our, and then we'll go to smaller hubs, et cetera. The bloom is largely off that rose. They need to have product closer. So having a waste stop of a million square foot someplace just doesn't, doesn't seem to work that well anymore. We've always been cautious about million square footers because the releasing of really big industrial buildings doesn't have a lot of track record. And if you think about it, if you're a big, sophisticated company like an Amazon, a Target, a Costco, are you going to take someone else's million square footer or do you want to have somebody do a build a suit with and build you exactly what, what you want? And then the other issue is today when things aren't, when money's expensive, do people really want to take on somebody else's building and have to spend a hundred million dollars retrofitting it? So we've always been wary of the releasing of million square footers. There are times when they release easily. We had a million square footers at Hampstead building, the state of Maryland outlawed like plastic containers or something like that. And Solo Cup said, Fuck you, we're never doing business in Maryland again, and move their warehouse to Delaware. But we have a 1.1 million square foot building in Hampstead, Maryland. The good news about that is, although not a great location, trip from, it's off the end of a stub interstate, et cetera, but building a million square foot building in greater Baltimore, Washington, there might be one site and you're going to have a fight because when you hear a million square feet, the neighbors go, trucks are going to run over kids. You know, it's a really hard, it's the only thing harder is building shopping centers. I think in terms of community impact, people don't want it in their backyard. And so we were fortunate. We had both hatchet books, Marvel comics and Amazon chasing that deal. We able to release it with no downtime, but typically million square footers are problematic. Yeah. Well, that's great notes on, on a specific asset and deal. And I think it prompts us to ask, you're many years into a, a prolific career of, of buying industrial assets and operating this portfolio. 
Any noteworthy, memorable deals that jump out to you as favorite assets or projects or deals that you've structured over the years? There's 562 of them in the portfolio yeah. today, so there are a, a, lot of them look, a lot of them look the same. I mean, in the I'll tell you, in the early days, we had one, and this is not a, we shouldn't be proud of this. We had one in Canton, Ohio that had, if you looked at a picture, I think there were 20 different roofs. So it had been built over time, et cetera. And we discovered about a year after we bought it, there was a grave in one of the buildings. <laughs> Can't make it up. See, those are the stories we, we like. <laughs> Another one down in Connecticut, we bought a building that had been used to produce steakums, the frozen steak treats. They went out not long after we bought the building and it took our asset manager a few weeks to get down there and we didn't realize that someone had turned the power off. Yikes. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I thought that's where you were going. <laughs> oh, with that. man. No, not, still not a good, not not a good result. Oh, selling, selling apartments, we see some crazy, crazy shit, but graves, are, that's a new one for uh, us. Gra- so. I don't know what's worse, a grave or a rancid fridge of steakums. <laughs> it's a, it's a toss-up. So you talked about one, one deal in particular that you did visit in the last few years because of the solar array on the roof. That brings up a pretty good point here. Sustainability, corporate responsibility is a big part of, of your ethos, of Stag's ethos. Can you talk to us a little bit about that initiative and, and how important that is in your day-to-day? It was interesting. In 2011, when we went public, we go, okay, we're no longer a tax-paying entity. We don't get deductions for nonprofit contributions. It's charitable contributions. Should we be active in it? And we spent probably a year sort of dilly-dallying around. And then I would say Carp and Fishman, who are obviously wonderful philanthropists, said, okay, guys, you know, you still have corporate responsibility. And so we have over time built up, I think one of the telling moments was at our IPO dinner, completion dinner, we did with the law firm and we we were all set to go out and do a big steak, red wine. At the last, sort of as we were leading up to it, I had been doing some stuff with Heading Home and the idea of doing an up and out move with our law firm instead of doing the big dinner kind of made a lot of sense. And I'll never forget my COO's daughter says to him, she goes, so let me get this straight. You decided to change the life of a family forever instead of having a steak dinner. How did you make that decision? Yeah. <laughs> but those, have you ever been in one of those up and out moves? Oh, yeah. very it's, powerful. It changes your life yeah. just to, to be part of it. And yeah. again, another example of stag coming through but for the we community. Have, since then, we have formally, we have a charitable action committee, which probably half the company wants to be on. We have significant amount of volunteer activity through the year. The charitable action committee points out. We've started a stag donor advice fund. We put, I think, about a half a million dollars into every year. We have five entities we pick, which recurring, you know, we promise to give you a certain amount, 50,000, I think, each of them every year. We have, with Donors Choose, which is a group that helps you fund educational teachers, projects, et cetera. One of our issues, we're in 40, I think 42 states now. We can donate in Boston. We certainly donate in Boston, but we want to have an impact across the country. We were able to devise with donors choose a program where we put money into every every one of the communities where we have building investments. So. Yeah, and that's where we got to know Rowan McFeely very well. Is you have him out, I think, every night of the week at some event supporting a cause on behalf of Stag. <laughs> well, Rowan obviously is very active in that. And I was started to say before, my break with sort of being another Boston real estate guy occurred in the 1989-90 credit crisis. And would I have ever have been the organized person that Brian Cavusian was? I listened to you, Cavusian. Brian's a very good friend of mine and a great deal of respect for. I never would have been, I can't see myself developing into the highly organized chairman of this, this of that, et cetera, that, or getting up every morning and working out like Brian either. But I do see that I would have been more involved in local community charities. I've been 
you know, I've chaired Champions for Children. I've chaired Heading Home event, you know, gala events and stuff like that. I've done a bunch of fundraising. I've done advising to executive directors of Big Brother, Big Sister on mentor identification and stuff like that. I'm not a board person. I find especially nonprofit boards to be, may I use the word useless, stultifying, waste of time. It's just not something I'm interested in, but I'm very interested in, and I'm actually considering going back to school to the Harvard has something called the Advanced Leadership Initiative, which is a year-long program that helps you transition sort of from a for-profit to a societal impact role. I'm not sure what that role would be. I have a couple of ideas, continue idea for Big Brother, Big Sister and to expanding there and maybe addressing some of the issues with their, one of the issues with Big Brother, Big Sister is the, the big little connection sort of goes around the nuclear family, which is an, probably an issue that they should figure out how to address how to make sure they involve the nuclear family as much as they can. I was involved in, as a host family in Metco when I was back in high school, pulling kids out of community is a bad idea. So a bunch of thoughts about how you, students that you're trying to help, keep them integrated in their community and their family. Again, ideas where I, ALI, or Advanced Leadership, doesn't want you to start new nonprofits, but helping nonprofits work better is something I think they're in favor of. I spend a lot of time, I'm on a roll now, I spend a lot of time, a fair amount of time, trying to figure out how to impact specifically the development of a third party in the U.S. There are two groups that I'm sort of following, No Labels, who has this presidential insurance policy for 2024. They'll run moderate candidates if it's Trump, Biden, or, or something like that. They think there's a big enough gap in the middle that they can actually elect a president. I think, I think they may be right. I'm not sure they're approaching it in the right way, but I'm sort of been following that. And the other one is the forward party, which is Andrew Yang, Christine Todd Whitman, and Miles, I forget Miles' last name, but they claim they're a party, but they're more of an advocacy group. They're for ranked choice voting, nonpartisan primaries, term limits, et cetera, but they don't have any policies and don't intend to, I don't think they intend to put forth policies. And so I don't think they're going anywhere, but I think no labels, again, I'm not sure they're pursuing it correctly, but I think there's, I believe strongly there's a need for a third party in the U.S. And I'm going to continue to try and figure out how to help make that happen. Yeah. Amen. I think you know, we talked about when we were starting this interview series, one of the potential names was learn, earn, and return. And I think you're entering a phase of your life where you have yeah. more time to focus on some other issues. Yeah. You know, you've been sort of head down, building the business, running the business yeah. for many years. And now you've shifted into the executive chairman role and you have, you have a little bit Which more time. Which ends June 30th. Ends June 30th. They figured out they didn't need to continue to pay me that much. <laughs> and then it's sort of on to the next adventures yeah. though. But I'll, I'll remain on the board. It was important for me to give up that title, both internally and externally. Bill Crooker, who's now the CEO, is doing a great job, doesn't need 99.9% of that, doesn't need my advice and counsel. And when he needs it, he's still available. But the problem he was having is like one of we, they proposed something strategically. And one of the board members, after he proposed it, turned to me and said, what do you think, Ben? So he needs to be un, unfettered in terms of he is running the show. And he was getting it from investors too, is I know Ben's still pulling the strings, right? And so taking that title away, I think is an important step in firmly establishing that he's in control, which is, is the right thing to do. Yeah. And I'm sure it's a process, you know, the whole transition succession process that a lot of these founder-led companies go through. I think it's important that the founder also sees the importance of these milestones and, and recognizes them. So, yep. Takes some humility to do it too, and and 
you should be proud of what you've built and, so, and so I, enjoy this. When I we went public, you have to have a public company board. I talked to Bill Campbell, who was lead director at Apple, who was a friend of mine, a couple other guys who were sort of noted in board composition, and John Bortz from Pebble Brook, who's noted in board composition studies. And we formed the company, and John calls me up and goes, Ben, you violated the first rule of board composition. And I go, what? I did everything. A member of Augusta. You need a member of Augusta on your board. So we ended up actually two years later identifying and bringing on board a very seasoned board guy. He came off of, he aged off of B&A, Stanley Black and Decker, I forget what other, a number of other really big firms. And he agreed to come on our board. But he was the one who said to me, Ben, three years ago, we were playing at Seminole. I'll drop some other, other names. We are both <laughs> golf junkies, so we like this. We're playing at Seminole. He goes, Ben, are you ready to be Ben Butcher? not Ben Butcher CEO, just Ben Butcher, because you realize the world will change. Your access to things, people's interest in you will change when you're no longer CEO. And I said, yes. And my wife still asks me regularly, are you sure you're ready? Are you sure you're ready? I said, well, the train's left the station, so I don't, I'm not sure we can recount. The, uh, although well, you can, you can went focus. back in at Disney, right? So, you know. Yeah, no, exactly. He went back. Well, I was going to say the Augusta National, you know, on, on reasons to go public. I think a lot of people would put that up there. <laughs> oh, yeah. that, that's, that's motivation enough for many people. I think it's a good transition, too, into some human interest questions here, Ben, and we're going we're gonna to fire a few at you, one of which we touched on earlier. We, we heard about some concerts in the Nomura days. We'd love to hear your, your favorite music experience ever. Where was it? What, what, I'm going to give you show? three. Okay. So I'm just out of business school. I'm living in Cincinnati. Cincinnati has a classic old music hall, just great acoustics, et cetera. And I went to a Spira Gyra concert. You guys probably don't even know what Spira Gyra is. It's a musical, non-vocal group, sax, trumpet, et cetera. Ethereal, unbelievably excellent concert. One of the best I've ever been to. Might be our new intro music next week. Perfect. <laughs> next, I will go to, when I was at Namura, I went to the opening of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, an eight-hour concert. Every group you've ever heard of did two songs. We went with Forest City, who was one of the big proponents behind the Rock and Roll Music Hall of Fame, and sat dead center in like the fourth row. It was unbelievable. We stayed in the Four Seasons or Ritz-Carlton, I'm sorry, they own the Ritz-Carlton down in Cleveland. Springsteen also stayed there. I think he brought one pair of jeans and two t-shirts for three days. We left from there in a limo to the concert. We get out of the limo at the concert. Cameras come up, flash, 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 flash. He's nobody. Cameras, cameras oh. down. <laughs> but they were convinced because we were in a Ritz-Carlton limo, we must be somebody. And then the last one is in 2004, Springsteen did a concert at Fenway where he did a Red Sox exorcism to meet me at Mary's place. It was like 72 degrees, light breeze. A friend of a friend is one of Springsteen's tour managers. He said, that might be my favorite concert ever. It was a spectacular concert, but just a perfect setting. And meet me at Mary's place is one of my favorite Springsteen songs. And he, again, did an exorcism for the Red Sox and they won. So oh, that's cool. awesome. Those are great ones. It's we, a Hall of Fame answer. We, we, like everyone, like most love Springsteen. We have a special affinity Luke Russert, who's one of our best buddies, his father, Tim Russert, was a huge Springsteen fan and hosted, you know, he hosted Meet the Press for many years. And when, when he passed away tragically, which was right when I was getting out of college and, and Luke was, he died of a heart attack in the studio. But Springsteen was overseas in Germany on tour and he did a live sort of telecast into the memorial service at the, Ken at the, yeah, Link, the, Kennedy, the Center. Kennedy Center and did an amazing acoustic Thunder Road with the harmonica and the acoustic guitar and did this whole discussion about about tim russert when yeah. he was at john carroll 
It was very moving. He wasn't even in the room with us, and it was one of the, the most memorable. Yeah. That one's music still on YouTube. That was a, that was a, a moving moment. Yeah. yeah, really cool. All right, so that's your top live music experience. Pretty good answer, by the way. Like we said, Thank Hall of Fame answer. <laughs> um, talk to us a bit about your daily routine. You're waking up. You don't work out every day like Kabujan, but it looks what, like what are you he does doing? for for our listeners. He looks like he does. He's in good shape. <laughs> I'll turn seventy in a month, so I'm, I'm I think wow. I'm doing well for seventy. Need that recipe. <laughs> So I, I get up in the morning, I read Axios Local, Axios National, Wall Street Journal Online, drink two cups of coffee probably, and then scan emails to see if there's anything of import. So I'll probably, if I have 50 emails, I'll probably open three or four of them. And then I go on to do, currently, frequently it's taking the dog out for a walk where I'll listen to podcasts. I listen to Freakonomics. I listen to Lex Friedman. And some other ones. I consider yourself a peer group of ours. He's religious about Good Dirt. Doesn't miss a Good yeah. Dirt episode. <laughs> of course. And recently, Good Dirt has been my only podcast. Yeah, I love it. There <laughs> it is. I have listened to a few of them, as I've indicated earlier. But that's probably what I do. And then it depends where I am. I've been in California for the last two months, so mostly it was get up and walking the dog on the beach. But this morning, I got up and went into the office. Probably still these days, I'm going to the office one or two days a week. Some days I go to TB12. I had shoulder surgery a year ago, and so they're still doing some stuff on my shoulder. And as we move into the spring and summer, I'll probably be playing some golf. I love it. Well, we're hoping to get out there with you. We will host at Hatherley, but if you insist on bringing us down to Old Sandwich, we will uh, bend. So one other question we like to ask people, if you could go one place in the world tonight for dinner, where are you going? I'm going to be exceedingly boring. When I was single, I was probably there two or three nights a week. I still love the place present. Yeah, press is great. You know, I probably should have said someplace in Paris, but I'm, well, that, I'm, some I'm people low. go predictable. Some people that's go local. <laughs> you're really well traveled, so I thought I thought maybe you'd go somewhere far. But press is awesome. And then we always like to ask: you've been instrumental in sort of mentoring a lot of your teammates and younger employees. We know several of them; they're they're good friends, and they speak incredibly highly of you as a mentor and, and a, a leader in their life and teaching them how to sort of get through this business and grow as, as people and as professionals. What advice would you give young people in general in this business today? Well, the one piece of advice I give young people who come to me, it pisses their parents and advisors off is I tell them there's no time in your life from this day forward that it'll be as easy to travel as it is today. And so if you have the opportunity to travel, even if you're going into debt to do it, do it because it's never going to be as easy and you'll learn things traveling that you'll never learn. Otherwise, that four months that I spent in Asia were unbelievable as a traveler, not as a tourist. So, I'm, you know, you wake up in the morning and somebody says, you know, you should go see that waterfall over there two days away. And you go sort of make your way over there. But you sort of wander around, but you meet the most interesting people. And the sort of the unfettered nature of that existence is, I think, extremely helpful in terms of character development, intellectual development, et cetera. So that, that's one thing. And, I, and again, parents, it pisses parents off. I have a, sure. I have a nephew now who is extremely strong character, student, athlete, et cetera. And he's having trouble getting to school. I said, take a year off, go travel. His parents are really bullshit with me. <laughs> the other one is, and this I tell people all the time, the world is risk adverse. And if you are willing to take calculated, tolerable risks, you'll do much better than people who try and avoid risk. Risk is not something to be afraid of. Risk is something to assess. And Again, the world is so full of people that are trying to avoid risk that even taking a modicum of risk, you'll outperform. That's great. It's good advice. Really good advice. And 
Mike mentioned you're well-traveled, and we know from our conversation before we hit record here that you're fluent in Russian. So we're going <laughs> to thank you for your time. You've been very generous. We're at an hour and a half here, and we've enjoyed every second of it. We feel like we could talk for another two hours, but we appreciate the time. We're going to ask you to send us off with a Russian phrase of your choice for our listeners, who I'm sure there are a couple out there that speak the language. So, Ben, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it, and we'll talk soon. Shida kasha, pisha nasha. There you go. Yeah. That's what it means. Fish and cabbage are our daily diet. There we go. <laughs> Love it. Ben, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben.